Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. Our topic today is the Nicene Creed as we continue our discussion of various parts of the creed, and we are focused today on the section that deals with the Holy Spirit, and our guest via Skype, we love technology, is uh, Fred Sanders, who is Professor of Theology at the Tory Honors Institute, I was said to go slow when I pronounced that, uh, from Biola and uh, author of Deep Things from God, Crossway. Fred, we really are glad to have you with us again. Thanks for coming back and, and talking to us one more time about theology. It's good to be here. Well, um, let, let's talk a little bit about, about your take on the significance of the Nicene Creed. This is a creed, obviously, that is uh, widely used in the church, and uh, what's your take on the importance of the creed as a whole? Well, the Nicene Creed, um, one of the great things about it, in addition to it being an early, short summary of the key points of, of Scripture, um, is that we know where it came from, you know? The Apostles' Creed is kind of home base for me, the one, the first one I memorized and the one I kind of grew up with. But we don't really know where that came from. It kind of bubbled up out of the old Roman symbol or something like that. Boy, the Nicene Creed, we know exactly where the fight was, the Creed of Nicaea in 325, and then as it was developed over the intervening decades before 381, the Council of Constantinople. Um, so we can not only uh, look at the controversies that caused some of the phrasing to take the shape it did, we can read the literature and the other writings of the people involved in drafting that creed. So That's in one that of the things sense, I really appreciate about it. In, in that sense, I can make the analogy just like we kind of know where the Constitution came from as a result of the Federalist Papers. We can trace the background of the Nicene Creed through the writings of the Fathers in the midst of these controversies. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so as we and we and we've talked with others about the way this is structured because of the trinitarian emphasis that leads from the father to the son and to the spirit and then we talk about the church and we close with a with a touch of eschatology at the end um uh talk a little bit about the setting of the creed as a whole in in the way you see it um i mean the, obviously christology was an important part of this controversy, but uh, the Trinity in particular is also a focus of what's going on with this creed. Yeah, and uh, one of the things you really get with the structure of the Nicene Creed is it emphasizes the relations of origin, that the Son is from the Father and that the Spirit is from the Father and from the Son. Um, and that, that, that really kind of links together the relations of the Trinity Again, with something like the Apostles' Creed, you, you could get just a list of these three persons um, and have their relations to each other not specified. But the Creed, the Nicene Creed really goes out of its way to say um, that the Son is from the Father. So in a sense, this is a step in, in specificity as we move from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed. I think so. Uh, to, to my surprise, I sometimes find non-Trinitarians who can nod their heads and affirm the Apostles' Creed which is baffling to me personally, because it's pretty obvious to me what's implicit in that creed. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Nicene Creed goes a step further uh, towards explication. 
And, and your point would be that in the explication, the distinguishing of what's really involved in the doctrine of the Trinity becomes clearer. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, we, we have sessions that deal with uh, the doctrine of God the Father and the picture of uh, Jesus Christ, His Son, but we come now in the creed to the portion that deals with the Holy Spirit. It's actually relatively short, um, but it is important um, nonetheless. And there's something implicit in here that I'm going to start with that I think is important uh, and is sometimes uh, missed. Um, and it, it well, let me read it as a whole, and then we'll talk about the pieces. I'm going to start at the end, interestingly enough. Uh, it says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. It's that last part I want to start on. You know, sometimes the implication is left in discussing bibliology. Um, that uh, the doctrine of, of the Bible is a recent um, creation, if you will, of theological discourse. And yet here we get a very direct statement about uh, the role of inspiration and the involvement of the idea of the Scripture being uh, spirit-breathed, if you will, God-breathed, but spirit-breathed in particular, the spirit's role in it, seems to me that has important implications that we shouldn't ignore as we think about the role of the spirit in activity of God. Yeah, I think that's right. So there's, the, there's a doctrine of Scripture there, there's a, a, an Old Testament theology of how God spoke through the prophets. Uh, here the Nicene Creed allows us to specify that with a Trinitarian appropriation, so that we can use a word like inspiration, which has spirit hidden there in it. Um, it also, in a in a sort of a developmental theology, where you emphasize that the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit, and where you emphasize the Holy Spirit as a sort of a, an eschatological gift, mm -hmm. uh, in times uh, reality and fulfillment, it's great to have the last line about the Spirit link back to the very beginning of uh, all God's words, that is that Scripture itself, the prophets, um, were moved to speak by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. In other words, he may be late to be specified as a person to be worshipped along with the Father and the Son, but he was there all along. And it's nice to have that addition at the end. Now, um, when you talk about he has spoken through the prophets, you alluded to the Old Testament prophets. Do you see that term, and was that term intended to be limited to Old Testament prophets, or are we thinking about the whole of Scripture when we get the creed in this situation, or do we know? I don't know the 4th century situation that would have been behind that usage. Um, I do think that it says prophets, but I, I would take it to be an allusion to um, the written Word of God in any form, mm -hmm. um, so that you wouldn't exclude Moses just because, you know, Moses' status as a prophet is kind of ambiguous. Right, he's in the Torah rather than prophet. the prophet section of the Old Testament. Yeah, I have more in mind the idea of, you know, are the New Testament writers being seen as as prophets in this regard, and is this an allusion to the whole of the canon as opposed to simply the Hebrew Scriptures? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't thought about that. I don't know. Huh, interesting. Um well, uh, we'll leave we'll leave that for everyone to ponder and and, and think about. You know, I do have the passage in mind uh, in uh, 
in Ephesians where we talk about the new building that God has built being built on the foundation of the prophets with Jesus Christ as a cornerstone, and of course the apostles are alluded in there. So, so uh, there's background for what we're talking about here, I think, in terms of the, what the possibilities might be. I, I'm, I'm not as familiar with this creed, so the question just popped up as a natural one uh, mm. for me to think about. Um, Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning. This, I'm, I'm strange. I started at the end, and we'll go back to the beginning. Um, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And I think uh, the first question is, thinking through what it means for the Spirit to be viewed as a person next to the Father and the Son, start there, the title Lord, and then the emphasis on the giver of life. So that's kind of three different themes we kind of want to work through. Let's start first with the idea of personhood and, uh, and how that works into this, uh, into this picture. Yeah, uh, the Holy Spirit, um, as a distinct person of the Trinity, you know, not reducible to merely being the Father or the Son, but being a third uh, that we have to a, a third one that we have to take account of. Um, I think that's crucial. It's important to state clearly. You can track the Holy Spirit's actions, especially in the New Testament, um, to identify the Spirit as somebody. Um, and yet, I always want to go one step further and and affirm that the Spirit is the person of the Trinity who is most frequently spoken of in impersonal terms in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And all I mean by that is that we don't talk about the Son being poured out, but we talk about the Spirit being poured out. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm glad to admit that that's an impersonal metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you, you pour out a liquid or a substance or something. It does not follow from that that the Spirit is merely a liquid or a spiritual substance or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I use the long phrase, he is the person most frequently spoken of in impersonal terms. Interesting. And, and, and you're... You're getting at that uh, to suggest uh, what in particular? I mean, what what grows out of that? Well, I just don't want to get in a fight with somebody who believes that the Holy Spirit is impersonal and have them steal all my favorite verses, you know, so that I'm in the position of saying, oh, no, they found the poured out verse. Now I have to come <laughs> up with a way to explain that. Uh-huh. I want to be able to say, no, no, I have the more comprehensive position of I saying see. this is a distinct person. Um, and under that heading, I can include he is the person whose uh, description or even self-description is most frequently impersonal. Hmm. Um, and then uh, as we think about this particular aspect of things, let's talk a little bit about how um, in, in some ways this is a this – is uh, I don't want to leave the wrong impression, but the, a harder – uh, conversation to have. I mean, we can certainly. I mean, God the Father is transparent. He's clearly divine. Uh, the Son, we work through Christology to talk about His divinity and the aspects. He does things that God does. That kind of thing. Um, so we see His divinity ultimately pretty clearly. The idea that He can sit with God in heaven is an image that points to that kind of authority. That kind of thing. When it comes to the Spirit, we we. We work a little harder, I guess, um, to, to make the point. Um, the passages that leap to mind are passages like in Proverbs 8 where wisdom is personified and is pictured in a way that is associated with the Spirit of God. Or, uh, or we get to the uh, picture of the paraclete whom Jesus sends who certainly has a, a personal 
uh, dimension coming from the Father. That pushes us in the direction of divinity. What do you think is the um, are kind of the more uh, effective discussions and arguments for pointing to the divinity of the of the uh, spirit as a part of the personhood of God? Mm. Um, well, to me, the, the divinity is fairly clear. It's the distinct personhood of the spirit that's a little harder to, to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. Um, here's where I think there's an advantage. Here's something that you could take to be a disadvantage of the way Scripture chooses to speak um, that I think is actually an advantage. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity with the least definite name assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, even for the Nicene Creed to make the decision, we're going to refer to this person as the Holy Spirit um, with that functioning as the official name. Um, that's a decision to sort of prioritize certain biblical statements, especially Matthew 28, 19, the Father, you know, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right, the three But if you actually go through Scripture to do your pneumatology, you have to account for all sorts of other names for the third person. Mm -hmm. Um, John 14, Jesus introduces the other helper, you know, Mm -hmm. I will ask the Father and he will send another helper. And then he calls him the Spirit of Truth. Well, mentally, I immediately norm that to who I know he's talking about, the Holy Spirit, but I have to look at the text and say, but he calls him the Spirit of Truth. And then as you read around in Scripture, the Spirit of uh, God, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Adoption, the Spirit of Truth, um, you end up with a whole host of name-like formulas um, to refer to the third person. That's simply not true of the way the Bible talks about the Father and the Son. Hmm. Um, There are other uh, descriptions available for the Father and Son, but father and son just really stick to them in a name-like way. Yeah, and another thing that that uh, sort of I guess leaps out at me is a text like First Corinthians eight four to six, where you get a very, for lack of a better description, a very binitarian emphasis. Mm-hmm. You get a clear confession of the Father. You get a clear confession of the Son, and the Spirit's kind of the maybe this is a variation of your impersonal. Is almost the hidden member of the Trinity in the midst of that declaration. Yeah. Yeah, so certainly we need to get to some explicit attention on the Holy Spirit and do proper honor to Him. He's the Lord and giver of life, worshipped with the Father and the Son. However, I don't think we should get in such a hurry to get equal rights for the Holy Spirit that we try to be more spiritual than the Bible. You know, yeah, and in fact, the, the fun, one of the functions of the Spirit talked about again in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 to 16 uh, passage is the idea that the role of the Spirit is to point to what it is that uh, the rest of the Godhead has done. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think Scripture, if Benetarian's a decent word at all to use, I think the New Testament itself is frequently more or less Benetarian in where it's putting its attention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're quoting John 14, where there's a lot of teaching from Jesus about the Spirit, but John's Gospel begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and a lot of attention on this two-person, a lot of focus on getting out the re- getting the relation between the Father and the Son straight. Mm-hmm. And then the Spirit's sort of a late arrival in the Gospel of John. He's only mentioned a few times. Uh, they're important times, but only a handful of them, before John 14, where he kind of takes over. Yes, exactly. And and, and that it, I think this is a, 
for a lot of people, this is a tricky exercise in some degree in thinking through the Trinity. I mean, the Trinity is a, is probably one of the um, challenges of expression for the Christian faith. It's precious to the faith on the one hand, and yet it's um, it, it's a it's a doctrine that uh, sometimes befuddles people at the same time. Yeah, that's right, and um, I, I think it's important to learn to speak of it biblically. You know, to both have a positive attitude toward the church's traditional handling of it, and also to constantly norm ourselves by biblical patterns of speech about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, another passage that shows the difficulty of this, it seems to me, uh, turns up in in 2 Corinthians 3, where we get the almost – I'm, I'm going to use a picture to describe it, because it's almost Venn diagram-ish between the relationship of Christ and the Spirit. They almost so overlap that you almost hard have a hard time distinguishing them, and yet it's clear that there's a distinguishing going on. Yeah, you're thinking of the Lord is the Spirit? Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it's sort of um, that sentence runs opposite of what we're looking at here in the uh, Nicene Creed, the Spirit is the Lord. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly the tension that I have in mind because it looks like you're talking about, I mean, obviously the Spirit's important and the Spirit is a freedom, and, but Lord becomes a title that you would normally tie to the Christ, and yet here it is uh, very clearly associated with the Spirit of God. Yeah, that's right. And Paul is usually going to save the word Lord as one of his ways of talking about Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, you know, I don't have Second Corinthians 3 on the tip of my tongue right now, um, so I'd want to look in more detail at the, the exegesis there. Um, but I do know that if we say God showed up in church when we gathered to worship Him, you know, you can get into a dispute about, well, was that the risen Lord among his congregation, or was that the Spirit uh, being given to us? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm willing to have that conversation. You know, I, I grew up Pentecostal and charismatic, and so I'm, I'm uh, fluent in that way of talking. Um, but I always want to emphasize, I don't have sort of a Trinity sensor built into my chest that can determine which person of the Trinity I'm encountering. Right. If I make a clear distinction between the second person spiritually made present to us, or the third person who is poured out on all flesh, um, I'm making biblical theological distinctions. I'm not sort of reading a transcript of my experience. Right, right. And the way I think of this, of course, is it's one thing for Christ to be present in our midst. It's another thing for our ability to recognize that because the Spirit indwells us and makes us sensitive to and connects to that presence in some way. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, um, functionally, you can't have one without the other, because if Christ is present to you, Christ is present to you by the Spirit. Right. Uh, It's it's, it's just an interesting challenge to think of it in that way. Well, well, I think we've um, talked about the Spirit as person and this idea of – we've begun to discuss the idea of Lord, uh, suggesting perhaps that the Second Corinthians passage is is one of the places where we see this. I'm actually – in the back of my mind when I read this, I have to be honest, I looked at it and I went, ooh, I I wonder where else the idea of the Spirit as Lord appears. It's an interesting title out of – all the things you could have connected to the Spirit of God to connect this idea of Lord to the Spirit is an, is an interesting move by the creed. It is. And, of course, the this is, I think, where it's important to consider the gap between the Creed of Nicaea from 325 and then what we call the Nicene Creed or the 
Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. Yes, I love that long name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no one wants to ever say that. That's um, right. But the uh, original creed from 325 only added on to sort of round things out, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Period. That's it. Um, so in intervening decades, they thought, well, that's not really enough to say about the Holy Spirit, is it? So what else do we want to say? And of course, there were some specific controversies with people denying the, the deity or the personhood of the Spirit. Um, so they went fairly big with it. And, and to just start by saying, I believe in the Spirit who is the Lord, and then go through kind of a miniature biblical theology of the uh, identity and works of the Spirit. Um, I, I kind of feel like reaching straight for the big word, Lord, is a way of compensating for the fact that they had left the Spirit as a, sort of an afterthought in the original creed. Okay, so this is more than a footnote when we come to the revision. This is uh, very consciously thought out. What, what are some of the controversies that we're thinking about that, that led to this elaboration? Well, there's an interesting indirectness to how the Spirit is talked about. Uh, among the, the fathers at the um, Council of Constantinople, 381, there, was, there were two schools of thought sort of on the, um, even on the conservative side, you'd say, on the traditionalist side. Uh, one group, I think led by Gregory Nazianzus, really wanted to say, listen, we said that the Son was of one substance with the Father. That was our key winning word back in 325. For people who are denying the deity of, of the Son, we said he's of one substance, in Greek, homoousios. Mm -hmm. And that school of thought said, well, now we want to add the Spirit more explicitly. Let's apply that same word, homoousios, to the Spirit. Um, and this made a lot of people nervous, because you're dealing with a, uh, a word that's not in Scripture, that was used sort of as a tool to solve one particular problem. And there was just a lot of confusion and ambiguity about whether it should be extended to the third person or whether it was a special father-son word uh, hmm. to be homoousios. And um, I think it was Basil um, of Caesarea who sort of championed almost a compromise view of saying, we won't use the word homoousios, but we'll pile up so many statements about the Holy Spirit that anyone who doesn't think the Spirit is the same substance as the Father and the Son is going to be freaked out and won't be able to sign this creed anyway. Okay. So um, and so that's... That's where you get the pile-up of, is it worship together with the Father and the Son? And the glorification and all that, because to make the point that uh, in the context of a, of a belief in a, in a singular God, the, the worship is something you only do to and with and for God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. So that the people in the, um, in the council who thought, I really wish we would say homoousios, I wish we would say of one substance, they would hear worshipped together with worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son and say, Yeah, that's that gets it done. Okay. And the people who are offended by it wouldn't be run off. With all the discussion that kind of uh, uh, how can I say this uh, rotates around the spirit in its activity today, how crisp and short this uh, text is, and yet um, if I can say it this way, it keeps the major thing the major thing in many ways. Um, I, I don't know how you, you talked about your background, Fred, uh, uh, and, and where you came from. Uh, it strikes me that a lot of the time that we spend talking about the Spirit, and particularly sometimes the way in which the Spirit becomes a controversial figure in the church today, often misses and loses sight of this most basic. Uh, character of what the Spirit of God is and what the Spirit of God does. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that's right. One of the uh, disadvantages of really focusing attention on the uh, sort of a second work of grace kind of approach to the Spirit as an extra uh, module that's added on to really take the Christian life to another level is you can lose your grip on the way the Holy Spirit is crucial and central to everything that's going on in biblical theology. And and uh, we're going to turn our attention to that because I think that is very, very important. You know, the book of Colossians is dedicated to the idea that in Jesus Christ you've been given everything that you need for salvation from the very moment of your act of faith. The opening of Ephesians does the same thing. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places simply as our, in our position as believers. And so this becomes an important, uh, important element in thinking about uh, what the work of the Spirit is and what we get through Jesus Christ. And no uh, act or responsibility of the Spirit is probably more important than thinking about Him as the giver of life, or as we alluded to in the first section, the idea of the Spirit being poured out on our behalf. Uh, this is allusion to, to what, uh, in, in your mind, when we think about this kind of a phrase? Well, it's a great Old Testament phrase. Um, it, as I recall, it's used of God in a couple of places, Psalm 36, I want to say, God is called the giver of life. I'd be interested to check the um, Septuagint on that and see what that looks like in, in Old Testament Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the big standout is, of course, the the uh, Ezekiel 37 scene where the um, Valley of Dry Bones is reanimated um, by the Spirit that comes from God to breathe life into them. And so uh, what we're really talking about is the category of the giver of life. We can think about the picture of being born again, of being brought back to life, of being resurrected. There are all kinds of associations that we're dealing with as we think through uh, this, this imagery of being the giver of life. I think of the New Covenant as well as being an important part of what's going on. Uh, mm. So um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, and, and I guess the best way in for this portion is to think seriously about the, the importance Jesus places on the Spirit in the Upper Room Discourse, in fact, so important that he basically says, look, if I don't die and, and, and depart, then, um, then I can't send uh, the other part of the package. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course, in John's... Um in John's way of organizing the story, it's the the risen Lord on the far side of the death and resurrection who breathes on the disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And um, in Luke and Acts, of course, this is a very important line of thinking. I, I tell people they don't realize how early and how deep into Luke this goes. In Luke 3.16, uh, John the Baptist is is baptizing, and people are speculating about whether he might be the Christ. Only Luke gives us that detail about this response. And he turns around and he says, look, guys, it's not me. Uh, I only baptize with water. This is a Bach paraphrase that you're getting. Uh, and uh, uh, But rather the one who baptizes with the Spirit and fire, that's the one that you'll know is the Messiah, and that's the way you'll know that the Christ has come, and that's the way you'll know that the new era has arrived. And then on the other end of that, we get uh, the driving of the narrative to Acts 2, where we get the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost, and then we get Peter's very detailed explanation for what's going on in that event. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's where he marks it as a, um, an eschatological thing, right? Going back to Joel 2. Exactly right. That day I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh. That's right. And, and on all ages, all genders, all social stati, I mean, it's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole shooting match basically there. Um, and, he, and we get this relationship, this Trinitarian relationship also expounded in some detail in that passage. As the Son, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, receives from the Father the the Spirit, which is now poured out, and which Peter says to this audience, you're now seeing and hearing the results of that, which interestingly, canonically, connects very neatly and tightly with John 14 to 16. Yeah, that's right. They've got different um, different frameworks for how to teach it, but the but the same point, I think. Um, that the Spirit is in the church because of the finished work of Christ. And so we're seeing here a declaration of several things, uh, including the beginning of the eschaton, the realization of promise, uh, the distribution of the benefits, uh, if you will, the payoff for forgiveness of sins. I mean, there's a huge list of things that are associated with what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah, on the list of uh, things that were supposed to happen eschatologically, the... uh, coming of the Messiah, the pouring out of the Spirit, the um, resurrection of the dead, and uh, Judgment Day, you know, the Day of the Lord in the sense of judgment. These are all on the eschatological timeline, and of course, the leading edge of all of them happens right there in the in the events at the end of the life of Christ, you know, that you've got the Messiah, the Spirit, the resurrection of one of the dead. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly, uh, the firstborn from the dead, to use the language of Colossians. That's right, and God dealing with sin in a final judgment kind of a way. Yeah. Um, so that's the the accomplished eschatology side uh, that then kind of sets the stage for the futurist eschatology still to come. And the interesting thing is, is that with that new life, there is a born again, there is a second life, there is a new creation. There, again, there are just multitudes of things going on with this uh, that can be looked at in imagery from a variety of ways. I often tell people that, that uh, the idea of being a new creature and being born again are very much associated with one another in the New Testament, and they show the idea that we aren't who we were. Yeah, and in this context, to say to go ahead and make explicit that those are associated with the work of the Spirit. Exactly right. right. And, and then there's the whole idea of, I'm, I'm going to beat this to a dead horse, uh, there, there is the idea of uh, becoming the temple of God because we've been cleansed. I tell people when they think about the gospel, they need to think uh, like, a, like an Old Testament person. So, you know, you got to put your yarmulke right here on the top of my head. Mine fits very nicely given the given the profile that I have. And, um, and in the midst of that, thinking through, you know, when you were unclean in the Old Testament, you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't participate in the sacrifices. So you engage in a washing or in a cleansing that, uh, that then rendered you clean. And, and the point of being clean wasn't to say, okay, I'm clean now. The point of the cleanliness was now you could reengage with God. And so now we've got this picture of the cross, which has um, canceled out uh, uh, our sin. We've been cleansed. It's the language of Acts and 10 and 11 talks about the picture of washing. We've been washed, and now because we're cleansed, the Spirit can indwell us, and we can become uh, holy before God. And whether we think about the assembly of believers as being holy, the whole group of them, or we think of ourselves individually as believers, uh, we are cleansed, and this is a this is a permanent kind of cleansing that God is supplying for us. 
Yeah, yeah. And if you think about the spirit dwelling in a prepared temple, um, that explains why the spirit doesn't come for that new covenant indwelling ministry until the work of Christ has been completed. Right. Uh, that the, the cleansing of the temple of humanity has been accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, sometimes, in, especially in Luke, but in, in a lot of the Gospels, you get the image that Jesus has the Spirit, or has the Spirit without measure, um, or the Spirit uh, descends on him and remains on him. Yep, that's um, Luke 3 and 4. Yeah, and it, the, the Jesus is sort of hogging the Holy Spirit throughout his earthly ministry, you know? <laughs> um, the Spirit is here and is in human flesh in one person. Um, but until that person carries out his complete work, the, the Spirit won't be given to be poured out on all flesh in fulfillment of Joel 2. Yeah, and you're emphasizing something else that's worth highlighting here, and that is the idea that this was something the disciples had to wait to receive. This wasn't something that came with, uh, with their immediate positive response to Jesus in his ministry. This, that there had to be the death in order to clear the way for this indwelling. So this isn't something that existed, at least in this form, in anything that was going on in the Old Testament. Mm. Yeah, there's that line, I think, in John 14, he is with you and will be in you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so that even there in the upper room where Jesus is already sort of speaking in some in some verses from almost in the future, you know, from the future looking backwards, like now is the Father glorified. Right. Um, but even there he's careful to mark that uh, the Spirit is with the disciples before the death and resurrection but will, after the death and resurrection, be in the disciples in this new covenant way. And, of course, Luke 24, 49 says this by saying um, that we are – the disciples were to wait to be clothed with power from on high uh, to receive the promise, if you will, uh, of the Father. That gets repeated in Acts 1, 4, and 5 as well, where the emphasis is on awaiting the arrival of this promise, which now they're told is going to come very soon. And of course, in the next chapter, we get everything that we've already talked about in relationship to Acts 2. So that, yeah. uh, so that this giver of life phrase, my point here is, <laughs> this giver of life phrase is pretty loaded. Yeah, I think I think it's right to see it as a, an introduction to a very large scope of biblical theology with regard to the work of the Spirit. And and we think about all the variety of benefits that come as a result of this, and I think that should engender a sense of appreciation for the many ways in which grace touches the life of a believer. Mm. Now, uh, let, let's, let's press on. Now we go to another phrase that certainly has a rich history and certainly has generated some discussion in the theology of the church, the issue of procession. Okay, so it says, um, you know, so we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So um, now, now the exegete's going to give way to the theologian. Uh, uh, <laughs> help me with what's going on here. Yeah, well, uh, kind of depends on how much time you've got. The, the original language of the Creed of 381 only said, um, who proceeds from the Father. Um, at some point, a couple centuries later, in the West, sort of in what we would now call France or Germany, that region, um, a, an additional phrase was interpolated, the phrase ut filioque, uh, who proceeds from the Father uh, and from the Son, uh, filioque, and from the Son. Um, the idea seems to be that uh, Christians who had been saying this creed had two different thoughts in mind as they were saying it. And broadly, Western theology thought, 
you know, proceeds from the father, and mentally they sort of auto-completed. Well, and of course from the son, we're just not saying so. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the East had all this time been saying it, and more or less been thinking, who proceeds from the father? Well, and only from the father, of course, we're just not saying it. You know, you know how relationships go. At some point they grow apart, yeah. and they, they, um, there's an envoy from the East to the West, and they go to church, and it's uh, sort of like being in one of those congregations that does the Lord's Prayer with trespasses instead of sins, right. where you're, you're reciting with them and everyone else keeps going trespasses. Um, you're just trying to say the Nicene Creed in a nice Christian way, and uh, you realize the people you're worshiping with have added this entire phrase. Well, the tricky part is what it has to do with the eternal relations of origin. It, not with regard to um, the missions of salvation history, mm-hmm. because there, I think, ecumenically, there's great agreement that the Bible's clear. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and by the Son. Um, you've got good biblical text for that. Um, at the very least, you'd have to say that the Son asks the Father to send the Spirit from John 14. And you're not getting the Spirit unless the Son has something to do with it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So for the West, it has just seemed obvious that, well, since the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, obviously in the eternal life of God, the Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and from the Son as from one single source, um, as the West will eventually go on to say. Um, the East, on the other hand, has sensed that as being some sort of abridgment of the distinctness of the Holy Spirit. Um, and once to the diagram they would draw would be more the Father with the Son coming from him one way and the Spirit coming from him the other way. Um, well, that's interesting because I'm thinking of Acts 2 and I'm thinking about that triangle, then s- someone's got to draw a line going this way. Well, <laughs> yeah. to my mind, that's the, the great advantage of the Western view is it specifies some eternal relation between the Son and the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. um, which is, is a good thing to be able to discern in Scripture and confess um, for theology proper. And so, and, and the concern on the other end of the East has been that this, um, this, uh, and somehow diminishes the um, the unique role of the Father as Father in some sense. Or, or what's the what's the concern from the East? The concern from the East is that it diminishes the distinctness of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Um, if if the origin of this third person of the Trinity is the first and second persons as one common source, um, then it doesn't set the Spirit off as as distinct enough. Hmm. Now, there's a whole lush growth of East versus West polemics where each side claims that every problem the other side has can be traced to this disagreement. Yes. I'm very skeptical of that whole meta-narrative mm-hmm. of uh, everything, you know, the East could say everything that's wrong with the Western Church, it's legalism or authoritarianism or all that kind of stuff. It all comes from some kind of subordinating the spirit to the Father and Son. And the West can countercharge everything that's weird about the East, all your Russian mystics and strange Byzantine stuff, comes from thinking you have independent access to the Father through the Spirit rather than through the Son. I think that's unfair fighting on both sides. Um, I'm very interested in Trinitarian theology, and even I think this is not the key that unlocks all the differences between uh, you know, two major Christian traditions. But it, but in your mind, this this addition is um, is, is something that one can um, understand in biblical terms. I mean, the ma- the passage that just keeps ringing in my ears is this passage in Acts two that the fa- that the 
uh, son receives the spirit from the father and is the one who's responsible for actually executing this connection between the believer and the Godhead with the gift of the Spirit coming from both of them. Yeah, my instincts are all Western on this, and so when I see biblical information like that, it easily folds into uh, the Western view of the Nicene Creed, the third article. Well, it, hopefully, By contrast we... to me, the, the Eastern view seems to require a kind of restraint um, that feels almost stingy to me. Interesting. Yeah, well, hopefully we've explained that with enough detail that people won't lose any sleep over it and we'll, we can, we can uh, press on. Let's talk about this next line, which says, um, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. And I think we've already alluded to this, but it might be worth developing. Um, and that is, um, with this line, we're, we're really trying to nail down, we absolutely mean the Spirit is as equal uh, in things as the Father and the Son. Yeah, that's right. And this seemed to be the, the most uh, consensus-building, clear and uncontroversial way to make a definite statement um, in 381. All the people that you kind of wanted to run off you know, who, who were uh, these supposed fighters against the Spirit or who weren't willing to admit the full deity of the Spirit, when they hit a phrase like this, they're just going to be offended and say, no, you know we can't sign that kind of a statement. And I think, you know, someone like the Cappadocian Fathers, Basil and Gregory, would say, that's right, that's the whole point of us putting it there, is we knew you couldn't affirm that. That's what we're arguing about. And so it's this is this is the this is the line in which although the first line also certainly goes there that guarantees the idea that when we think about the worship of the one God, um, uh, that one God includes the Spirit in, and He is the object of worship and glorification, just as the Father and the Son are. That's right. Yeah, um, and. There's not. It's not as if we're looking around the Bible, looking at other candidates for inclusion into this list of who else is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. I think on any um, honest and straightforward reading of Scripture, there's exactly one other candidate, um, and this is just a way of making that explicit. Yeah, and of course, in the context of a, of a ultimate belief in monotheism, in the midst of a Trinitarian confession, this is another element that guarantees. Um, the importance of the Spirit. I think the other place where we see this in the New Testament is a formula you alluded to earlier tied to baptism in Matthew, where we get um, a religious rite of identification, baptism, associated with the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, so that the three are treated equally in that phraseology as well. Yeah, and even when we use language like first person, second person, third person, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that what we're really describing is the order in which the names occur in Matthew 28. Interesting. Um, you know, you've got these three terms, mm -hmm. and um, they could occur, therefore, in six possible combinations. Mm -hmm. And as uh, Rick Durst has pointed out in a recent book, Reordering the Trinity, all six possible combinations do occur in the New Testament. Hmm. Um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit order has some strategic importance because it occurs right there at the end of Matthew on the lips of, of the risen Jesus. Uh, but also it has the edge numerically, mm -hmm. that, that it has a, a slight lead in how frequently the three are named in that order. And plus it follows the story in many ways, which is, you know, you have the Father, then you have the appearing of the Son who takes on flesh, and then it's through the Son's reception of what the Father 
is passing on as a reflection of his commitment uh, to us. Uh, he's the one who receives and passes on and pours out the Spirit. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, Gregory Nazianzus, who was the first um, chairman of the Council of Constantinople in 381 that produced this creed, um, has a great little saying in his theological orations where he says, the Old Testament is the time of the promising father, the New Testament is where the Son was visibly sent and was among us in the flesh, um, and then the church age is the age of the Spirit. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's kind of a fast and loose, quick thumbnail sketch of salvation history, but it, it it's pretty nice uh, fourth century summary. Yeah, and, and and so we get this sense of, of how the the spirit and son and father related to one another as we re as we reflect on this well this is a this is an interesting journey um you know it's been an it, it it was an interesting journey for the church historically to sort this out uh it's an interesting journey i think for any believer to contemplate the depth and the complexity and the rela relationality how's that for a word uh mm -hmm. of the uh of the way god works and one of the things that strikes me, this is probably the last thing we'll have time to discuss, is is this relational element in the Godhead that is kind of the presupposition for everything else that happens in the creation in many ways, which sometimes, or at least until, perhaps until recently, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is until recently, has perhaps been a little underappreciated as each of the characters within this are specified, the relationship between them becomes very, very important to um, be sensitive to. Yeah, and I think th there's a lot more that could be said about that. It's certainly important to note that when God creates a world and enters into a redemptive relationship with it, that that's a major event, obviously, um, but it's not the first time God has the chance to have a relationship. You know, um, climbing up to this level of the doctrine of the teaching of the Trinity is uh, to recognize that God already has a completely fulfilled life in Himself before entering into relations with that which is outside of Him. And of course, the flip side of that then is is that to have a God who 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 moves and in some ways is condescends to create a creation in which He makes a, beings in His image and relates to them shows the special nature and the dignity of life of the human beings that He creates that He puts back into connection with this Trinity. Mm, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, Fre Fred, I really thank you for taking the time to, to go through this part of the confession about the Holy Spirit with us, you know, uh, word by word almost, and, and to give us some historical context. And uh, we, we just thank you for, for helping us to see uh, the depth of what the Trinity is about. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind. From mentoring one woman to leading a ministry, browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.